If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This time around, we talk with Dr. Ellen Langer about mindfulness and learning. Dr. Langer is a Harvard professor, a Guggenheim fellow, and the recipient of numerous awards and honors for her work on mindfulness over more than 35 years. Before we get to that interview with Dr. Ellen Langer, though, we want to thank your membership, the podcast sponsor for the third quarter of 2017. Your membership's learning management system is specifically designed for professional education with a highly flexible and intuitive system that customizes the learning experience. Your membership's LMS seamlessly integrates with key systems to manage all of your educational content formats in one central location while providing powerful tools to create and deliver assessments, evaluations, and learning communities. You can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. For our resource for this episode, we want to complement our audio interview with Ellen Langer with some video content. Namely, we'd like to highlight a video of Dr. Langer giving a talk titled Mindfulness Over Matter. In it, she highlights many of the key points that she discusses in more depth in her book, Mindfulness. It's a great video to watch and discuss with colleagues, or of course, you can also view it solo. And you can access the video simply by going to the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 97. So Jeff, you were the one who got the honor of talking with Ellen Langer for this episode, and I have no doubt that it was a very interesting conversation. It definitely was, and this was one that I was really looking forward to. I'm a big fan of Dr. Langer's work. I I first became familiar with it through reading her book, Mindfulness and Learning, which I highly recommend to listeners, but I've since gone on to read much more of her writing. Now, you know, as we all know, mindfulness is a a really trendy topic right now, maybe too trendy, but Ellen began researching and writing about it long before it became such a buzzword. She's really a pioneer in what could be characterized as a Western view of mindfulness. So it's not all about meditation or, or mantras the way she writes about it. You know, rather, she defines mindfulness as the simple process of actively noticing new things. And one of the elements of her work that I find really useful and interesting is that she contrasts this with the state of mindlessness. And that's the state that most of us live in most of the time. We're fairly mindless in how we go about uh, life. So, you know, as you might guess, there's a strong connection between mindfulness and learning on the one hand, or mindlessness and not learning. And that connection and its implications, you know, that's one of the main things that we explore in our conversation. And I think listeners are really going to find a lot of food for thought here, both for their own learning and for the how they support learning with the audiences that they serve. Well, that sounds fantastic. So let's get on with the interview and uh, let's all listen mindfully. This is Jeff Cobb, and I am really excited to be joined for this episode of Leading Learning by Dr. Ellen Langer. Dr. Langer is a Harvard psychologist widely known as the mother of mindfulness. She has published multiple best-selling books, including Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, 
on becoming an artist, reinventing yourself through mindful creativity and counterclockwise, mindful health and the power of possibility. She's also written numerous other books as well as more than 200 research articles on mindfulness over the past 35 years. So if you are even remotely interested in mindfulness and how it can impact your life and the lives of the learners you serve, you are definitely in the right place. Without further ado, Dr. Langer, welcome to Leading Learning. Hi, nice to be with you, Jeff. Well, I'm looking forward to discussing mindfulness as it relates to learning and possibly even touching on creativity and health, because I know those are topics that uh, you've also explored relative to, to mindfulness. But to start off with, obviously, you've become known by many as the mother of mindfulness because of all the valuable work that you've done on that topic. But but clearly, that's not where you started out. Uh, in fact, I'll often tell people that you were basically doing mindfulness before mindfulness was cool, or at least that's how I see it, you know, back when at least nobody in the West was really paying a lot of attention to it. So right. how did that happen? How, how did you come to be so focused on mindfulness as an area of study? Okay, well, it was back in the early 70s, and what happened was... Um, I would walk into a mannequin and I'd say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would uh, watch people do the strangest of things. And so initially I was studying mindlessness, which seemed to be uh, pervasive. And 40 years of research since the original work has shown that virtually all of us are mindless almost all of the time. And the problem is when you're mindless, you're not there to know you're not there. So everybody thinks they're mindful. And then we have this um, silly instruction that people give to us, and they say, well, be in the moment. Mm. But the problem is, again, when you're not there, you're not there to know you're not there. So you need to do more than that. And it's probably a good time to, uh, for your listeners to understand what we mean by mindfulness, Definitely. Uh, which, again, we've been studying all this time. This is uh, not meditation. Meditation is fine, but meditation is simply a tool to lead you to post-meditative mindfulness. Right. Mindfulness, as we study it, is a simple process of noticing new things. And as you notice new things, that puts you in the present, that makes you sensitive to context and perspective, and it's a, a process of engagement, so it feels good. And as you're noticing new things, you come to see, gee, you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. And so then your attention naturally goes to it. So it's very easy, and it's the, it's the essence of what we're doing when we're having fun. Mm. Now you mentioned in the introduction uh, learning that people have this mistaken notion of no pain, no gain. And my view is if there's pain, of course there should be gain. But one can gain without pain and does so in the process of being mindful. You know, if you were uh, listening to um, a comedy and or simply a joke what makes a joke funny is that you're led one way and all of a sudden you see oh it had this other meaning and so if you realize that laughing is a result of laughing at jokes for example is a result of our being mindful then the question that often comes to mind about isn't it difficult to do goes away wouldn't it be nice just to be laughing and happy all day long and then you also mentioned creativity. Now, when I first started studying mindfulness, I could have called it creativity. The reason I didn't was because we have a mindless notion of creativity, where what's important is the final product. And mindfulness is a process. 
And when you're mindful, what happens is the product is usually better. Right? So um, when you're mindful, you're noticing new things, the neurons are firing, and it's literally and figuratively um, life-supporting um, and encouraging. People live longer, and they feel better. Mm. And so you've you know, just said that it's really just the simple process of actively noticing new things. That's really what mindfulness comes down to. I've also heard you say that to be mindful is to be confident and uncertain simultaneously, yes. I, I guess. Right. Could, well, what, hap- yeah, what happens is that when, when you notice new things about the things you thought you knew, you come to see, gee, I didn't know it as well as I thought I did. And the fact of the matter is that everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. And when we think we know, we're essentially being mindless. We're letting the past determine the present rather than be, be in the present. So what happens is you go to school, your parents, and you're young, and they give you all these facts. And each of these facts are situated in a context, but you're not told that. So you come to think you know. And if you know, then there's no need to pay any attention. But you can't know because everything is changing. So when I lecture on this, I, I might say to people, how much is one in one? Mm-hmm. Here's a fact that everybody thinks they know. And so people dutifully say two. But it turns out one plus one isn't always two. That if you are adding one pile of sand to one pile of sand, one plus one is one. One pile of laundry to one pile of laundry, one plus one is one. In fact, if you think deeply about it, or even casually, you come up with the realization that one plus one doesn't equal two in the real world probably as often as it does. So if the simple thing that we think we knew, one plus one, imagine with our understanding of people, of their needs, of their likes, dislikes, personalities, you know, you call somebody by a particular name, you know, describing their behavior, and you say, gosh, this person is just so gullible, Um, and you're being mindless for several reasons. One, and the more important one, is that Behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective, or else the actor wouldn't do it. So nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know, today I'm going to be gullible. So what is that person intending? And it turns out people who are gullible are being trusting. People who we might see as impulsive are being spontaneous. People who we see as, um, oh, I don't know, as inconsistent are being flexible. Turns out that every description we have can be understood in an equally powerful but oppositely valenced way. And that leads us to be less judgmental. And that leads us then to be less uh, concerned about other people judging us. And life is just easier. So after 40 years of research on this, we find the simple act of noticing. We did some of the early studies with older people. Uh, They lived longer. It's good for one's health. It's the um, experience of engagement, so you feel good. People, when you're mindful, see you as more attractive and um, more charismatic. And the products you produce are better. So it's a win, 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 win. And the fact that it's easy as that last win. Well, now, it makes me wonder as I'm listening to you. I mean, it sounds like, or it could, it, what you're saying could be interpreted as kind of all knowledge is contextual, all knowledge is relative in a certain ex- to a certain extent, that it's 
that potentially you can't be certain about anything. And I mean, it's so sort of the, I guess the argument against mindfulness, uh, not that I would really embrace this myself, but does it, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds scary in a way to be, to well, be mindful, yeah, to be that open. Right. That's smart of you, Jeff. But in fact, it, what right happens right now is that people pretend because they think they know they don't know. They think you might know, and they hope that they can get away with not knowing mm. um, by pretending. Once, so they're making what I call a personal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know, but it's knowable. Hmm. What people need to do is make a universal attribution for uncertainty. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. And then you can stand tall, and the best, I think, posture essentially is to be confident but uncertain. Right. So there's nothing scary about not knowing. Well, now, it, it makes me think, though, a little bit of our, you know, Current context, at least in the in the U.S. and and perhaps in other places, and this is this is far from a political podcast, and I'm not not don't want to really go down the political rabbit hole, but uh, it it seems to me that there is perhaps a bit of a mindfulness problem out there right now. Just the general openness to learning, to mindful learning, that uh, there seems to be a a lot of resistance to to that. I mean, the, do do you feel that way? Is anything different now from how it's been before? Um, not since Trump is elected, as <laughs> you're quietly implying. Um, I started this 40 years ago, and over 40 years ago, and at that time, as, as you rightly said, that nobody had heard of it, and today it's hard to open up a magazine or listen to um, newscasters, I'm not talking about Trump, where they don't use the word mindful. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, it's become part now, very often they're using it incorrectly, and they don't, they only have a, a meditation kind of understanding of uh, mindfulness. But no, I think the world is more and more open to all of this. And, you know, but obviously that we're going through a rough time right now. I, I was doing one of these interviews right after Trump was elected, and the interview had nothing to do with politics, but it was a call-in show, and those are the only questions I got. You know? <laughs> I mean, I'm not so I'm not going to I'm not going to speak to it. Um, I think that uh, certainly mindlessness is prevalent in many quarters. Um, as I said before, most people because people think they know. So when they know, they're closed. They're not open to what's happening. And when you become mindful, what happens is you can take advantage of opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't notice, and you also avert the danger not yet arisen. Hmm. But you can't know everything, and that's why you know people um, you know understand about unintended consequences. Right. So you go forward thinking it's going to be good, and ups there's this downside, or you think it's going to be a downside, and ups, there's this upside that you hadn't considered. Right. Because we don't know. It's, and so, if an individual wants to become a more mindful learner, this is something she's just seeking to do, you know, on the one hand, it's just simply noticing new things, but, but you know, we, we, we have the habits of a lifetime that can be hard to, to suddenly switch into doing. I mean, are, are there practices that, um, that you would have well, people undertake? Yeah, there are things people can do. They're not practices. That's, you know, practice is something people don't want to do. Mm. Um, And if you're going to meditate, you know, they call that a practice where you have to learn how to sit still for 20 minutes twice a day and say your mantra and what have you. This is very different. This is being out in the world. And um, if you could do nothing else, 
but establish a mindset for uncertainty, you'd do just fine. Hmm. Other than that, that what you, you know, when life is working, it doesn't matter. When life isn't working for us, that's the time that people naturally seek solutions without being trained. They just say, oh my goodness. You know, and so stress, for instance, is a major problem for people all over the world. I get this question about, you know, how can people not be stressed when there's so much to know? And the fact of the matter is there's no much more to know than there was in the past. The difference is that people think that the more they know, the better they'll do. And um, there's no evidence for that. Mm. When, you know, when you're stressed, stress, relies, stress is mindless. It relies on two things. First, uh, the belief that something is going to happen. And second, that when it happens, it's going to be awful. Well, it's easy to combat both of those. The first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, you know, give yourself three, five, you know, um, the, there's no magic number, but let's say three reasons why it might not happen. Well, as soon as you do that, you immediately become less stressed because you went from it's definitely going to happen to it might not happen. Mm. Now, let's assume that it does happen. Evaluations are in our heads. They're not in the things we're evaluating. So if we say it's going to happen, how might that actually be a good thing? So now you have this thing that you thought was going to be devastating and definitely going to happen. So it may happen, it may not. And if it happens, there'll be good parts of it, bad parts of it. It all depends on how I choose to view it. And then stress dissipates. Right. Um, exercises that people can do. Uh, first, every time you hear yourself say something like, it's obvious, or you see your, you know, because nothing is obvious since everything looks different from different perspectives. Um, every time you see yourself as judgmental, you call somebody something, you see them in some pejorative way, you're being mindless. You turn around and say, well, how might that very behavior have made sense from that person's perspective? Um, aside from all of that, that you walk out your door and notice three things that you didn't see before. You come back in the door if you're living with somebody. Notice three, five things about that person. Mm. And just, just keep doing this with, um, you know, if you're having an interview, ask three different questions from the questions you've written down for yourself. Um, so the idea is just keep taking the thing you know and turning it inside out and around. And uh, what happens is over time you come to see, gee, I didn't know. And again, then once you're in that position where you're standing tall, because again, you know nobody knows, so it's okay not to know, um, then what happens is you're naturally mindful. You don't have to work at it. Right, right. Now, to, to change the frame just a, a little bit, we were discussing before uh, we started recording that uh, most of the people who are listening to Leading Learning are in, in some way or another involved in what we characterize as the business of lifelong learning. So they're offering conferences, seminars, doing online learning, you know, professional education, uh, continuing education, those sorts of things. What would you say to those people to, to help them deliver uh, or facilitate, I don't know what the right word is, uh, learning experiences that are going to be more conducive to mindful learning? I mean, can, can you help to architect a, a more mindful learning experience? I think so. I think um, 
in the choice of speakers who attend these conferences. I mean, obviously, if people are going to be lecturing on mindfulness, people learning about mindfulness. But if you had um, a conference on X and you got some leading authority on Y mm-hmm. to give it, that would be interesting because people would say, well, how is this related? And since everything is related, um, they would be more mindful. I think that um, people have a mistaken notion that, uh, you know, we said before, no pain, no gain, and that um, one can gain, should be gaining all the time. Well, we also have that idea with respect to uh, learning. Mm-hmm. Learning is fun. And so what should happen is that all of these conferences, everything that, that's being done should be fun doing it. And if it's not, then you need to do it differently. And when you're having fun at it, then you're going to be mindful. And when you're setting up um, an event for other people, rather than focus solely on the transmission of information from one person to a group of people, make it fun for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's, a, that's a definite win because at the end of the conference, people will have had a good time. Right. Um, and, you know, they will probably have learned something anyway. Right. But, um, so you'll only get points for that. Well, and related to that, um, I mean, many of these same groups that, that I'm referencing that, uh, you know, are, are putting on different types of learning experiences, delivering different types of educational opportunities, it's become a, a trend now, a, a focus for many organizations to have, you know, a, a recognized body of knowledge, a, a set of competencies, basically a, a, a uniform set of knowledge that people have to master, and then they're going to get certified um, for that. And that certification is, you know, supposedly going to indicate that they have learned what they need to learn to do what they're supposed to do. I mean, how, how does mindfulness jibe with, with that, you know, certification and that whole approach to kind of competency and bodies of knowledge? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. Let me give you an answer that's far afield. So people um, may say that watching television is bad, all right? But television is neither good nor bad. It's the way you watch it. Mm. And so, too, with a certification process. You know, you can have a rigid set of rules um, and uh, teach that people had better follow each of these rules just as they're laid out, and that sounds very mindless. Um, If you found a way to make each of the rules a little more tentative, you know, if, um, oh, I'm trying to think of an example of somebody who um, might not have the competencies that are in that uh, list, but have many other competencies, that you wouldn't want to just reject the person. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, at a place like Harvard, where I teach, that we have rules, and then if somebody wants to petition for something quite different, then we listen, and most of the time they're granted permission. So the, the way to appreciate anything being mindful or mindless is when it's mindless, it tends to be rigid, and you follow things regardless of whether they make sense in the particular context or not. All right, that mindlessness is where the past is dictating the present. And mindfulness is um, a a looser, more conditional structure. Mm. You know, and and just if you're teaching material, for instance, the material itself to be taught mindfully would be, it would seem that it could be one way of looking at it rather than is. You know, one plus one is often two. 
um, in certain theories, one plus one is two, but in the real world, not always. Right. You know, so, you, so you teach the deviations. Um, the lifelong learning, uh, anything that's true for lifelong learning should really be lifelong, meaning it should start earlier on. All learning should be fun. All learning should be conditional. Um, and I think that the lifelong learners themselves probably would benefit from some of uh, the research that people like myself do. Hmm. You know, we have a lot of research with older folk where um, we make them mindful, they live longer, they're happier, and they're healthier. A dramatic study. Do you know my counterclockwise study? I, I am familiar with it, yes. Okay, so let me just briefly, for any listener who doesn't know it, yes, what definitely. we did was to take older adults, and these were men in their 80s, and that was back in 79 when 80 was 80, not the new 60. Right. And so they were really, really old by all of our stereotype notions of what it means to be old. And we were going to have them live in a retreat for a week that had been retrofitted to 20 years earlier. And they were going to be living there and speaking in the present tense about the past. So what we were trying to do was to take their minds and have them be who they were 20 years earlier. And we had control groups and so on. And what we found in a period of time as short as a week, those men in this group who were their younger selves, so to speak, their vision improved, their hearing improved, their memory improved, their strength improved, and they looked noticeably younger by the end of the study. So um, the reason for teaching things like this to lifelong learners is to make them aware that um, there are much greater prob- possibilities than most people assume. And yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating study. I, I really love that. And uh, I mean, I think it uh, brings home, we were talking earlier about, you know, context, and uh, it really brings home how important context really is. It also makes you think that, you know, so much um, about health, uh, about aging, uh, about things like, you know, creativity and innovation, um, that, you know, to the extent that uh, our, our negative views of those are kind of our, our negative uh uh, ways of being around those are really learned behaviors to a certain extent. I mean, you know, exactly. we can't all live for... No, exactly. Yeah. Well, the, you know, first of all, uh, I have uh, four different studies, and these are controlled experiments, where people are living longer. But um, I think that what people should focus on, rather than adding more life to their year, more years to their life, is to add more mm. life to their years. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I know in, in terms of, um, you know, you living life fully, uh, you do so many things uh, besides uh, your focus on mindfulness. You, you yourself are an artist, uh, yes. I know, and um, I've looked at uh, some, of, some of your work online, which is great to, to see. And I, one of the questions we like to ask everybody who um, comes on to the show is about their own um, sort of lifelong learning uh, habits and practices, whether that's around art or you know anything else that, that, that you're doing, uh, might be professionally as well. I mean, I'm going to make the assumption that you are a a mindful, lifelong learner. But um, are there particular you know methods, practices, habits, any anything you do to help cultivate and, and promote your own lifelong learning? Um, other than follow the advice that I've just given all your listeners, mm. probably not. 
you know, that um, life gets easier as you get older. You become aware that all, the, you know, when you're two years old and you fall down and you scrape your leg and it's, oh, my God, the world's going to end. And when you're eight years old and Johnny or Janie doesn't invite you or send you a valentine in elementary school, oh, my God, the world's going to end. And this goes on. Right. You know, at some point, you get to the point where, you see, it's not, it's not going to be so terrible. Yeah. In a, one of my books, which is called The Art of Noticing, where I pair one-liners that have been culled from research over 40 years with paintings of mine. Uh-huh. Uh, one that I like in particular is, you know, ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? And most of the time when we're younger, we're reacting to things as if they're tragedies, when in fact they're only inconveniences. So simply asking yourself that. And, you know, so I've done this for so many years that at this point I'm, I'm pretty... Um, calm <laughs> and I, I'm just one of these happy people um, what can I say well that that sounds like a, a fantastic note to uh, end on um, but I will ask you know before we exit uh, where where can people best find out more about you and, and your work um, you can go to the Langer Mindfulness Institute.com or ellenlanger.com more well, information on the former than the latter but so mindfulness, the Langer Mindfulness Institute.com, ellenlanger.com. Great. Well, Ellen, thanks. Google so- me. Okay, that's true. You can do that for everybody these days. Just, just, just Google them. Great. Um, well, Ellen, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Leading Learning. My pleasure. Take care now. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Ellen Langer. As we're exiting, we want to say thanks again to your membership. You can find out more about your membership and all it offers at yourmembership.com. To get show notes for this episode, including access to the video of Dr. Ellen Langer speaking, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 97. And while you're at that link, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And as always, if you're getting value out of the podcast, we'd really, truly appreciate it if you would subscribe. We would also really, truly appreciate it if you would take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes, and you can do that by going to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We really appreciate it, and it makes a world of difference in helping others find this podcast. And finally, consider telling others about Leading Learning. You can send out a tweet simply by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. Or if you're not into tweeting, you can take the language that pops up there and put it into any social network of your preference, whether that's Facebook, LinkedIn, however it is that you share things with your network. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.